Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray as we come to this text of Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you have revealed to us in your word the doctrine and reality of the fall. And we thank you for this passage as well as we see you seeking out fallen men. We thank you that you sought out Adam and his wife. And we pray that we would take heed to what is in this text and that you would use it in our heart and our life for good and that you would help me to preach a word in season that would be faithful to minister to this precious flock that you've given me responsibility to watch over. And so may you be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we saw last Lord's Day the reality of the fall into sin. We saw that the woman was deceived by the serpent and the man willingly took of the tree. We saw that the serpent questioned God's word and his goodness. He then denied God's word. And then he showed them that there was a better way that besides following God, that was better, a better path than following Jehovah. And then we see that The woman, because of the lust of flesh, the lusty eyes, and the pride of life, she took of the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband, and he ate. And then in light of that, in light of that sin of eating the forbidden fruit, the first sin that caused the fall, we see that they their eyes were open, but not for good, but they for for bad, because then they saw they knew that they were naked, they felt the shame and guilt of of being naked, and therefore they sought to do something about it by sewing fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. And so that's what we saw last Lord's Day, that the the reality of the fall and how Adam and his wife felt in light of that happening. Now we will see what Jehovah, their God, did in light of them falling into sin. So the main point of this sermon is Jehovah seeks out fallen man who is hiding and they seek to blame shift about their sin. Jehovah seeks out fallen man who is hiding 
and they seek to blame shift about their sin. So my first point, Jehovah seeks out fallen man who is hiding. Jehovah seeks out fallen man who is hiding. And my second point, the man and the woman seek to blame shift about their sin. So again, my first point, Jehovah seeks out fallen man who is hiding. So if you look at verse 8, we see that it says, And they, Adam and his wife, heard the sound of the Lord, or Jehovah God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Jehovah God among the trees of the garden. And so we see that they hear the sound of Jehovah God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's very possible that Jehovah would meet with them and would dwell with them in special ways on different occasions. This might have been something that they were had experienced before. His presence coming in a unique and powerful way to meet with them and to be with them. But here we see, instead of them embracing this time and looking forward to it and longing for it, their response to hearing the sound of Jehovah walking in the garden in the cool of the day is not joy, gladness, and celebration, but instead fear and trembling and therefore hiding themselves. We know it was fear because Adam will say in verse 10, and I was afraid. And so there was a fear related to God and not really a healthy fear. I mean, there's a sense in which Adam not to be afraid would have been irreverent. But at the same time, it wasn't the healthy fear that we think about fearing the Lord or fearing Jehovah. This was a fear, if you have an experience where you are a young child and you're walking home from going over a friend's house and you know there's a bully that lives in this area. And you're afraid to even go by it and you're, you're going in terror because you're not sure what he's going to do. I don't want you to hear that Jehovah is the bully. That the, the example is more about this, the kid's reaction. He's trembling. He's fearful. He doesn't want to get anywhere close to him. So he does whatever he can to hide, to go a different direction, to stay away from this one. He is terrified of being beat up, have his stuff stolen, being uh, thrown in the mud, being thrown in the water, all types of things. And so that's what we see. They are hiding in terror from the one who alone can actually help them in their situation. And so they are fearful. And therefore they hide themselves. They feel themselves naked. They know they're naked. They're ashamed in their sin. And instead of coming to God, they run from God. Instead of seeking him, they hide from him. Hide in quotes, of course, as we'll see. But we see that their response to sin is not going to God. It's getting away from him. And this shows us too, this is how natural man has responded to God ever since. In our unconverted state, we run from God. We feel the shame. We we feel the guilt. We can at times even feel what we're doing is wrong. But we don't go to God. We don't seek after God. We hide from him. Because we think God is like that bully. By, na- by nature, we think God's like that bully. We just have a, an unholy fear of him. Not a true fear, an unholy, that we just sense that trembling. And so we don't want anything to do with God, and we try to hide from him. This is what natural man does. 
This is the response that we do by nature to sin. Because we hate the light, we don't go to the light. Why? Because we don't want our deeds to be exposed, as John 3 says. And so this is the natural response. Not to go to God, but to hide from him. Not to seek him out for forgiveness, mercy, and reconciliation, but to get away from him. That's the way we, we all respond. And even as Christians, if we're not walking by the Spirit, we can have a tendency. We sin, and our reaction is not to go to God for mercy, but to flee from him and get distract ourselves with other things. To focus on other things and not God. And therefore, we, we kind of appease our conscience by distracting ourselves instead of seeking his mercy. And that's a form of hiding from God, quote-unquote. And so we see this is the response of Adam and his wife. They don't seek God, they hide from him. But we see God could have, right after they sinned, he could have killed them and started over. He could have physically killed them right away. He could have done many different things. But we even see Jehovah coming to man, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, is actually an act of mercy. He could have judged them right there and, and wiped them out. He could have struck them dead right away like he did Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. Or when he flooded the world and only saved eight souls. But he came to them and was seeking them out. And then verse 9 says, Then the Lord, or Jehovah God, called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? It should go without saying, but just for clarity, Jehovah knew where he was. <laughs> it wasn't like he was, I, where is he? No, it wasn't like that at all. Jehovah knew exactly where he was. God knew exactly where he was hiding because no creature can hide from God. Nothing can be hidden from God. There's no way to hide from him. There's no way to run from him because Jehovah, the living and true God, is omnipresent. And therefore, he knows all things. He sees all things. And there's no way to hide. This is to use a human analogy that, of course, can't truly get to it because there's no way to truly see this reality as an infinite, eternal God. But it's like a child who's in trouble and they know they're going to get in trouble. And so they run away from their parent and they go in their room. The parent knows exactly where they went and they put their covers over top their face. And the dad comes in and says, Johnny, where are you? Johnny, where are you? He knows exactly. He sees his shape on the bed. He sees the covers over top. He's not doing it because he doesn't know. He's doing it for the purpose of Johnny confessing where he is and admitting that he was running and, and where he was. And so we see a similar thing. God knew where he was. God is trying to draw out of Adam to confess where he is. And so Jehovah God calls to Adam and says to him, where are you? You think how Adam, though, could have felt about this. I mean, think about the things that might have been going through his mind as he's hearing from the God who he knows he sinned against. And this God is telling him, where are you? After knowing that he broke a clear command from God and rebelled against God and God is seeking him out. I mean, it can be terrifying if a child knows they're going to get a spanking and they're hiding from their parent. And the terror because knowing that my parents are going to find me and I'm going to get a spanking for what I did. This is even worse than that. The terror that a child might feel because they don't want to get spanked for their disobedience. How much more Adam as he sees this reality of 
what is God going to do? What, what are, what's going to happen in light of my sin and my wife's sin? What's going to happen as Jehovah is calling out, where are you? And so Adam does respond. But it's interesting, he kind of responds, but he, he puts more to it, where he says, verse 10, so he, namely Adam, said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. It's interesting, because Adam Here's the voice. So whatever it means that the Lord or Jehovah God was walking, Adam interprets it as he hears him. So whether it was a physical form or not, whether it was just his presence in a manifest way, Adam says, I heard your voice. Adam experienced hearing the voice of God in the garden. And Adam says, I was afraid. I was afraid. Adam, instead of only experiencing healthy fear of God, love to God, joy in God, celebrating when he was with God, now he felt something that he never felt before. Fear. But not healthy fear, but this terror of thinking, what is going to happen to me after I've sinned? I think this afraid should not be understood as that healthy fear of God, even though, of course, there is some terror related to the fear of God, most definitely. But that fear of God that is good leads us to God. Healthy fear doesn't lead us to run away from God. Healthy fear of God doesn't lead us to hide ourselves from God. Healthy fear wants us to be with him, but we want to be with him with reverence. But this is the type of fear, similar to that bully analogy, where he doesn't want to be with God because he's ashamed in his sin. He's afraid. And how do we know the reason why he was afraid? Because he was ashamed. And he he describes that as because I was naked. Why does he want to be with God? Because he feels shame over his sin. He feels guilt and shame. And therefore, hearing the voice of Jehovah in the garden makes him afraid. It makes him afraid. And he doesn't want to be with him. He wants to hide from him. And we see that he does answer God when he asks this question. But he's telling him the reason why I'm hiding is because I am afraid. And so we see that's how he responds. And this is what sin can do for the natural man. And even sadly, sometimes for Christians, instead of coming to God again, like I said before, it can lead us to run away from God. It can lead us. To run away from God. And I've said it before many times in preaching, but a temptation that Christians can have as it relates to their sin is when Christians sin, we have a temptation to give ourselves what I call the self-lash. The self-lash, which means when we sin, we feel God doesn't want us to come to him right now. God wouldn't want to hear us to hear us to pray to him right now. We have to do something to clean ourselves up, make ourselves feel better. We do something spiritual. We read the Bible. We pray more, but not confession prayer, but just make ourselves feel more spiritual. Make ourselves feel better. Then we can come to God. That's a temptation that we can experience. But we, and we see that's how Adam responded. Instead of coming to God for mercy and asking and begging God for forgiveness, He ran from God in fear 
because he was naked and therefore hid himself. And then Jehovah says to him in verse 11, and he said, Jehovah, who told you that you were naked? Adam has been naked his whole life. Adam's always been naked. He's only known being naked. There's never a time he was not naked. And so it's an interesting question that Jehovah comes to him and says, who told you that you were naked? How, did you know, how do you know that? You've always been naked. And so who told you? Because Adam would have never experienced a concept of being naked in some bad way. It was how he was made. It was what he knew. He was naked and unashamed. But now he's naked and, and feels shamed. He's ashamed. He was once unashamed and now he feels shame in his nakedness. And so Jehovah asked him, who told you that you were naked? And then he asked him this infamous question, this serious question. This question where he's really getting to the heart of the matter. Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you that you should not eat? So we see all this is a buildup to get to this question. He would, Jehovah's winning to this main question. He started by saying, where are you? Then Adam answers, in a sense. Then he asks him, well, who told you that you were naked? Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? And then he gets to the key question. Because, of course, the Lord knows why this happens. He knows why Adam's fearful. He knows why Adam's hiding himself. But now we get to the real question. Have you eaten? Adam, have you eaten from the tree of which I command you that you should not eat? Have you eaten from the very tree that you were told not to eat? And so we see that the Lord in mercy is coming to Adam, asking him, but coming to him, seeking to expose what they did. First by asking him, where is he? Then by asking him, who told you that you were naked? And then asking him, have you eaten of the tree which I command you that you should not eat? And so we see this, this buildup to what's going on. This reality of what is happening in this account. But now my second point. The man and the woman seek to blame shift. Or Adam and the woman, or the man and the woman seek to blame shift about their sin. This is when it gets very interesting in how they respond. I mean, it's, it's, we see this build up. So then God asked the man, or I'm sorry, after uh, God asked the man, have you eaten it from the tree of which I command you that you should not eat? This is Adam's response. Adam's response, if it was good, would have said, I'm guilty. I broke your commandment. Please forgive me. Something like that. But Adam blame shifts in this way. He blames two people for his sin. The woman whom you gave to be with me. He says, if it wasn't, basically saying, if it wasn't for this woman, that by the way, you were the one who gave her to me, it would have happened. The woman that you gave to me with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. If it wasn't for this woman that you gave me, she's the problem. And by the way, you're the problem because you gave her to me. That's what he's saying. The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. I remember when I used to work at a restaurant doing different things, I would tell, I would love to say different times, the Genesis 3 syndrome. Because in a restaurant environment, you have a lot, you can have a lot of blame shifting. 
And I would sometimes comment and say, yeah, that's the Genesis 3 syndrome. The Genesis 3 syndrome is, it's not my fault, really. It's someone else's fault. If it wasn't for this person and that person or the other person, if you have siblings, if you have children, you know this can come up. If it wasn't for this person, this wouldn't have happened. This person was the culprit. I'm not really to blame. It's this person. They were the one doing this and that and the other. And if it wasn't for them, I would have been good. And so Adam is saying, basically, God, if you would have just loved me by myself, if I didn't have this woman that you had to give me, I would have been fine. Because she's the one who gave me of the tree, and she's the reason I ate. And this is the natural response. The natural response of the sinful heart, the natural man, is never to take responsibility for his sin, ultimately. It's to say someone else is the problem. And sadly, there are schools of thought, there are philosophical schools of thought that help people with that. Because what is much of secular counseling connected with? What is it based off of? You're not the problem, someone else is. You're not the problem, someone else is. You're not the reason for your sin. If it wasn't for them, you would be very good. Because the problem is out there, not in you. That's how natural man thinks. And so that's what Adam is saying at this time. He's not acknowledging his sin for what it is. He's blame shifting. He's blaming the very woman that God gave him to be his helper. And so we see, we see this reality. And this is why it's important for all of us to acknowledge our sin for what it is. Because we can all be tempted to blame shift. But let me just tell you. There could be times where someone is genuinely coerced. That, that does happen. But for most of us, that's probably never happened or very rarely. We sin because we want to at that moment. Because we choose to do what we want above what God wants. People can make it harder for us. People can bring temptation. People can make it more difficult. But at the end of the day, we are responsible for our own sin. There's a song that the the song is called... I'm the problem. I'm the problem. Because that, at the end of the day, that's what the reality of sin is. That the reason why things, they are that they are in my life, if things are going bad as it relates to sin, is ultimately on me. And I have to take responsibility before God and before others and not blame shift. And, but Adam, we see, blames the woman that God gave to be with him. What audacity after sinning against God willingly and of his own volition, what audacity to say, the woman you gave me. That's why this happened. She gave it to me and that's why I ate. But then we see in verse 13, the woman does something very similar. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? You would think if the woman had the honest confession, she would say, I didn't trust you I believe the serpent. I trusted his word. He told me he had a better path for me than you did. I believed him. I was deceived by him. And because of that, I believed him. I sinned. I broke your commandment. And I need your mercy. And she's at least maybe a little bit better than the man. But she says, the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And so she's basically blame shifting it to the serpent. Not I Cho, I, I was deceived, yes, but I was the one 
who rejected your commandments. And so we see her blame shifting as well. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so we see their response to their sin, blame shifting. Adam blaming his wife and God and the woman blaming or blame shifting to the serpent. But in light of all this, what we should remember that the, the wonderful thing about a passage like this is this is all connected with Jehovah, their God, seeking them out. Again, he could have just been done with them, wiped them out. But this is all connected with him seeking out sinners. He comes to his fallen creatures, man and woman, and instead of coming and destroying them, he actually seeks them out because, as we'll read the whole chapter and, and go through it, we'll see because his purpose was to show them mercy. His desire was to give them mercy. That's why we'll see that their coverings were woefully insufficient, both physically and spiritually, and we'll see that he covers them with tunics of skin. And so his coming to them was for the purpose of showing them mercy because our God seeks and saves that which was lost. Our God is a merciful God and his desire is to seek and to save the lost. We even know with our Lord's coming, you know, our Lord did not come to judge the world, to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. The world's already condemned. The Bible teaches us that. They're already condemned. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so we see here that foreshadowing of God coming to rescue sinners. We'll see in verse 15 of this chapter, that first gospel message of, a, of the seed of the woman who would crush or bruise the head of the serpents. And is this not what Jesus said his ministry was? Why did Jesus come? Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And if it wasn't for our God being a seeker and a saver, a, seek, a, seek, a seeker and a savior of sinners, we would have no hope. We would have no hope. Our hope is only found in that God who is merciful and gracious and long-suffering, doesn't condemn sinners. He does, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying here. He doesn't condemn sinners. His desire is to seek them out to save them. He does, of course, condemn the ungodly and the unbelieving, of course. But he comes with a message of hope to lost sinners that they could be saved and redeemed and rescued. And even right after, as we'll see more clearly, right after the fall into sin, God promises that there will be one who will come who will destroy the works of the devil. And so Jesus is the fulfillment, is the, is the climax of God seeking to save sinners. And so our hope is found in the reality of God seeking and saving the lost. Again, he could have just wiped them out. He could have started over. He could have judged them that moment and physically killed them. He could have. But instead, he came to them as a loving, gracious God. Yes, of course, offended in sin, 
but also coming to them with his purpose of preaching the gospel to the serpent, as we'll see, and clothing them with tunics of skin. And that's what the entire Old Testament is about. And the New Testament. How man is fallen and corrupted in sin, and yet God seeks and saves the lost. Preeminently in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here the mercy of God to come to his fallen, sinful creatures. But he comes to in wrath, remembering mercy, as we read in Habakkuk. In wrath, remembering mercy. And so we see God's mercy to these sinners in calling them. Because what did Jesus come to do? Pictured here. Not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was his ministry, to call sinners to repentance. And God is not condoning their sin, justifying their sin. We'll see that he brings curses upon them and all that. But we see that he is merciful to them. Because if you look at verse 20 of this chapter, it says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So we see the mercy of God even to them. And so for those who are not saved, the only hope that they ever have before God is that he's a seeking and saving God. The only hope that sinners have who are not saved is that they have a redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, if they repent and believe in him. Because he came to seek and save that which was lost. And then for us as believers, what a blessing it is to know that even though we deserve condemnation and before Christ we're condemned already, Jesus came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So that we could be reconciled to God through Jesus who seeks and saves the lost. Through the one who came to redeem us by his blood and by his resurrection. And also how easy it is for us to to blame shift about our sin. But may God give us mercy and help to acknowledge our sin before him and before others that we might find mercy and grace. Because the scriptures say, he who covers his sin, you know what happens? They will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. It's a wonderful verse. When we cover our sin, when we blame shift, we make excuses, we don't prosper. But when we confess that sin, we forsake that sin, God gives us mercy. What a wonderful promise. And also for all of us in Christ, what a wonderful blessing it is not to be in the first Adam who brought sin and death, but to be in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So whenever we think about the first Adam, it must point us to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Because the first Adam fell, the last Adam didn't. And therefore, in Christ, we have righteousness, life, and salvation. So yes, Adam and Eve did fall in sin. But Jesus Christ, the seeker of sinners, brings us to salvation. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to honor you and thank you for seeking and saving the lost. And thank you for Christ coming, not to condemn, but to save. We thank you for these truths and help us to understand them in light of the rest of Holy Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.